We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Congratulations to Team Canada for putting forth a memorable effort in their World Cup opener. You have made us all proud. See you on Sunday here. Scott Thompson. I think I'm add to this one. I can add to this one. All right. That's giving me a headache. I'm already. I'm, how are you feeling? Uh, I, I'm fighting through it. I'm fighting through it. And there's a lot of people that they're a lot sicker than I am. But, uh, you know, it is that time of year and it has gone through our family and one out the other and literally out the other one end of the family and out the other. And that describes a lot of things I know. But, uh, hey, uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Uh, the gang's all here. Uh, actually, no, Diana's out. Dave is here. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Yeah. I, I, you know, uh, the kids were sick before we went away. And um, I, I guess at least it stayed away for the time off. And then as we got back, uh, it sort of uh, jumped on us again. And I'm not complaining in any way. But if you hear feedback, it's because my headphones are cranked so loud because I can't hear a dang thing. And if I'm a little hoarse, because my throat is sore. But you know what? We're up on the wheel. And uh, if, team, <laughs> if Team Canada can do it. Old dad can do it, too. So uh, anyway, feel free. Hey, maybe you want to share how you're feeling. Oh, well, you know what? Uh, what? What's the headline in Burlington today? Uh, city Council uh, voting to uh, masking within uh, for city employees in Burlington. There you go. How are you feeling about that? Uh, speaking about hornet's nest, I think exactly. <laughs> Forget Vuvuzelas. That has opened a hornet's nest, I'm sure, over there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, just one of the many headlines that we're going to be covering today uh, over the course of the uh, show. And, of course, as Dave reported at the top of the hour, uh, the sewer situation. Matt, I was watching that on the news. Did you see the hole? Maybe there's a a line we should isolate, Will, and keep for later. Um, It was fascinating because, you know, the cameras go down there and they show you exactly what is sort of going on. Not that we really know because... I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about sewers, but you know, I, you know, I get the piping concept and how it all works. And it appears as if there was a sewage pipe. And then they sort of just a contractor perhaps, and you know, um, I'm no expert here, uh, popped a hole in the bottom of it. And then that let the sewage go down into a drain below that, which was really a storm drain that went out into the harbor. So I don't know. And, and, you know, let's be honest, this isn't Sewergate. It's not, uh, you, you know, um, is it a big deal? Of course it's a big deal. Absolutely. I don't mean to downplay it, but it's not as bad a spill as uh, the other one. And uh, that being said, where else is it going on in the city? These are obvious questions that people uh, want to know. And let's not forget, we are sitting on a very old city and old infrastructure and such. So Lord knows what's underneath all of us <laughs> as, as we enjoy the history of the hammer. So we'll be talking about that coming up a little later on. Uh, we can play you a couple of clips now. This is, you know what, let's save these simply because we just played them uh, in the news anyway. But, uh, you know, story ongoing uh, and and we'll bring you the updates as uh, obviously uh, they come available. The interesting thing is what's going on moving forward. How do you make sure that this doesn't happen again? I think it's fascinating that they even discovered the dang thing at this stage. And of course, which makes you ask the question, why didn't they do that sooner?
Twitter. Uh, but yeah, there you go. All right. Also, fascinating news today. There, are, there you go. You got your crap on the local level, no pun intended. And then on the national level, we've got the Emergencies Act inquiry. And uh, I, I, I've never seen Christia Freeland in one place for so long without like a 30 second soundbite in my life. And she's literally been on the stand all day. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland answering questions uh, about the Emergencies Act, which of course you're hearing. This is, I'm going to play a little quick. Uh, um, uh, excerpt here of a summary of uh, how things got set up today and we'll bring you more coverage of course uh, Dave watching this in the newsroom and we'll talk more about it over the course of the afternoon but here's Global News' Sandy Salerno During her testimony this morning Freeland talked about the Ambassador Bridge blockade in Windsor being a turning point for how she saw the protests. That's when she says the economic threat to Canada really escalated. At one point Freeland choked up going over a conversation she had with a bank CEO who told her about an investor who said they did not want to quote invest another red cent in your banana republic in Canada. A very profound duty to Canadians to stand up for them and I'm surprised that I'm getting emotional but um I really felt it Freeland was also asked about the move to freeze hundreds of bank accounts of those with ties to the protest, saying it was done as a way to urge protesters to end their demonstrations without violence. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Wow. Um, I would be greatly offended, too, if someone of that importance had said, I don't want to invest another red cent in your banana republic. That doesn't happen with one incident called the Freedom Convoy. That comes to a head after several examples of mismanagement and lack of leadership that ends up in a freedom convoy, which gains the world's attention for all the wrong reasons that really didn't even need to happen. So I don't know if I'd be choking up in tears because you feel sorry for the term banana republic, but I'd certainly be feeling insulted and ashamed and it would make me look inward to think what justifies so comment so, such comments and it is more it is more than just a freedom convoy and a blockage at the borders this slowly 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 coming to a head if you keep pushing people to extremes you're going to bring out the opposite extreme whether it's on the left or the right. And somebody calls it for what it is, and our deputy prime minister, our deputy prime minister is in tears. Let's just put it on that, that all on the back burner right now. Let's talk about something that's truly uh, uh, means a lot to us and, 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 and warms our heart. How about a donut? You know, it's right about that time of the day where you could probably eat one or ten. Unless, of course, you're loading up on these types of donuts. Uh, you know, it's this is amazing and it's cool what has happened, um, other than, of course, the negative aspects of a global pandemic. But it has changed a lot of uh, businesses and, and people's lives and, and given them opportunity as well as uh, all the hell we've been go- going through. And it, it's made uh, it's made us realize what's important and and uh, and. 
and comfort food is one of them. And a donut shop that uh, has satisfied many a sweet tooth in Waterloo region, having its grand opening in Hamilton this weekend, Lady Glaze Donuts, opening at 586 Concession Street, 586 Concession Street on Saturday, and since launching in Kitchener back in 2019, uh, they've opened locations in Cambridge, Guelph, Stratford, uh, 20-plus flavors of donuts, uh, including all of the traditions. We'll talk about that. And coming to Hamilton, why Concession Street? We'll ask them. Uh, Mark Brown with us, co-owner of Lady Glaze Donuts. And with us now, Mark, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am very much. Thanks for having me on. So how did this all start, Mark? Um, Lady Glaze was really just kind of a, an idea we had actually just before the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. Just um, I cooked my way throughout Toronto and uh, Hamilton and that sort of thing, and then kind of returned home to where I was from, which was Kitchener-Waterloo, and uh, decided I wanted to kind of bring what kind of I had been doing in the bigger cities, so cooking from scratch and kind of applying very much that like local aspect and sort of really that, that craftsmanship back to sort of a, a traditional bakery product. So we opened Lady Glaze um, with uh, the mantra that we wouldn't use any prefabricated ingredients, so everything is made from scratch. The glazes, the fillings, uh, the dough itself, um, we don't use any preservatives. We keep everything clean um, and as delicious as possible. And um, three years later, we, we've just kind of continued to grow and um, the community's kind of really kind of responded well to what we've been doing and continue to update our menus to make sure that we can kind of cater to as many people as possible. I mean, we've got regular, we've got vegan, and we have gluten-free. And then for the new year, we're, we're, we're taking a stab at uh, trying to introduce a new keto donut. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of how it's been going for the pandemic. Uh, so it's not just about big, decadent donuts. No, no, not at all. It's, I mean... One of the things with with how the world's going these days is everybody wants to enjoy it. So why not try uh, to to produce a product that is one you can kind of be happy with what's in it and not have to worry about preservatives and chemicals and things that are bad for you or recalls or things like that. We just we use good ingredients: just milk, flour, eggs, sugar, butter, um, and then apply that same principle to to a vegan product using again pulling out eggs and replacing those with applesauce, uh, pulling out butter, replacing that with uh, cocoa butter sort of thing. So we take that same approach so we can kind of be uh, your, your one-stop shop to, to cater to, to everyone in the family that, that perhaps eats differently. So, Is that the attraction here, do you think, Mark? The fact that it's, um, and I don't mean to make this sound as it, as it does, but I remember way back when someone describing a donut to me as deep-fried fat. Um, is this obviously with the care that you're taking with your ingredients and how you're producing these donuts, is that, is that, do you think behind the success here, obviously, as well as great tasting donuts? Yeah, it definitely is. And I mean, one of the things we like to do by having that approach is we walk the line between sort of nostalgic and sort of fun modern. So we have all of those classics that uh, you expect a donut shop to like the Cinnamon sugars, cinnamon twists, apple fritters, Belmont cream, uh, which is our version of the Boston cream, um, vanilla sprinkle. But then we also look to play with like other flavors that are from around the world and have a little bit more fun and with with what's seasonal or, or introduce people to new ingredients. I mean, one of the ones that's done very well for us is uh, is a donut that we do that was kind of inspired by a snack from South America um, with uh, coconut pistachios and coffee sort of thing. So um, we. We toe that line, but uh, we make sure that we kind of respect uh, what's always been done with donuts, making those delicious, but then also want to show people something new in terms of uh, that a donut is not just a donut. It's it's, it's a pastry, and we can be treating it uh, as such. That's a very good analogy. Um, you said you started this business pre-pandemic. How did that affect all of this? How did it change it, perhaps? 
Uh, well, we started in November, so we got about four months under our belt before everything was shut down and the rug was pulled out from underneath us. So wow. not only was it hard enough that you're in sort of that opening phase of trying to get your name known and, and kind of get customers into your store, but then you have the government saying, actually, no one can come into your store, so good luck. Um, so we, we decided to kind of pivot in what we did, and we kind of became... Uh, for, for lack of a better description, the Amazon of donuts. So we, uh, my brother and my sister-in-law got laid off and, uh, they came and drove for me and we ended up delivering donuts. And so from March till, till May, we kind of continued the delivery direct to your home business. You would place an order with us. We drop them off on your doorstep the next morning. Um, and by Mother's Day of, of 2020, we were doing 250 houses a day. We had five drivers on the road and we just continued to get our product out there to as many people as we possibly could. So, um, that was kind of really the pivot that helped us uh, uh, grow over the pandemic. And then as things have eased up, uh, we just kind of continue to see a need in specific communities where um, perhaps it's it's underserviced or we think that uh, we might be a good fit for, for how the community is eating and uh, decide to, to open up shop there. Uh, and has the online business continued Is that as a side branch to all this? died down now that people can kind of get back out they do love the ability to kind of get yeah. out and get into a store and interact with people but uh we still have that convenience there where you can kind of place your order where yeah i want donuts this saturday and i want to pick my flavor so i'm not going to be disappointed when i get to the front door that they've maybe already sold out so you can still use our website to kind of pre-place orders um and uh, that, that's, that continues to this day and i don't think it'll be something that uh we'll ever get rid of all right saturday concession street hamilton why this location we were actually uh, friends with the people next door at, uh, at Heal Wellness, and uh, they kind of told us on the great things that were happening on concession and said, hey, you should really kind of look at, at what's going on in the street. And uh, we've been looking at Hamilton for a while. We, we sort of did the traditional downtown routes, and we looked at James, and we looked at John, and um, looked to see what was around there. We looked at Ottawa, and then uh, just the opportunity came up to, to do concession, and we kind of really loved the neighborhood with, with Heal on one side, and just a few doors down, we've got the Dirty South. So we, we've got these great neighbors that we can kind of grow into, and the food hall is opening up very soon. So um, we think it's going to be a really good food draw, and we definitely want to be a part of that. Lady Glaze Donuts opening at 586 Concession Street, 586 Concession, Saturday. Uh, and, of course, Mark Brown with his co-owner of Lady Glaze Donuts. Mark, good luck with all this. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have talked uh, many times about uh, uh, the supply chain and our effects, uh, or rather our dependency on other parts of the world uh, in order to live the lives that we do, uh, lives that we do, and specifically around technology. Lots of chatter around Huawei, especially during during the uh, detention of the two Michaels and, and, and what was going on there. Uh, protests have erupted at the world biggest iPhone factory in a Chinese city. Uh, according to footage circulated uh, footage circulated widely on lo- uh, online, videos show hundreds of workers marching, uh, confronting uh, confronted by people in hazmat suits, riot police, uh, live streaming of the protests uh, said workers were beaten by police, uh, videos showing clashes and such. The manufacturer, Foxconn, said it would work with the staff and local government to prevent further violence. Where does your iPhone come from? Where does your smartphone come from? Let's Let's bring in Carmi Levy, sorry, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, and is with us now. Carmi, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Great to be here. So let's start with that. Where does the iPhone, where does the, whatever the Samsung, whatever it is, where does it all come from? 
Uh, I'm staring at my iPhone and it comes from that very factory. It's a, a place called Zhengzhou uh, in China. It is a it's not so much a factory. It's almost like a, a, a freestanding city. Over 200,000 workers work there. Many of them actually live on site. Uh, literally all of their needs are taken care of, care of within the limits of the compound. So you live there, you shop there, you do everything there. You leave your family and you basically spend all of your time for months or in some cases years on end uh, within this massive facility. Most iPhones uh, globally come from here. Year. Apple, of course, does have other manufacturing sites, um, but the the Foxconn facility that that is kind of at the core of these protests, that is where the bulk of the iPhones are currently come from coming from, and that's where you know obviously China has its zero COVID policy. There has been difficulty at this facility before. Apple has been making moves to kind of shift some of its pr pr production elsewhere. They just announced that they're going to be producing iPhones in India, for example, to kind of reduce their dependence on this one massive facility. But it's going to take time for Apple to switch over. And what they're already saying, because of what's happening in, the, in this particular uh, Foxconn facility, that if you want to get an iPhone 14 Pro, or Pro Max, the high-end high-end units, those are going to be in a really short supply uh, this holiday season, largely because of what's happening at this factory. What about other brands? Does this Is this really only mainly affecting iPhone? Uh, it's mostly iPhone. Right now, this particular factory, they, 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 all, they call it iPhone City. So it's pretty much all Apple all the time. The problem here is, is that Foxconn doesn't just have one factory in China and they don't just supply to Apple. They do supply to pretty much every other smartphone maker in the world. Uh, most smartphones, not all, but most, uh, do come from various manufacturing facilities in and around China. The reason being is they've raised uh, high-end electronics manufacturing to a high art. Nobody does it better or cheaper uh, or more effectively. No one can turn on a dime uh, like these uh, producers do. Foxconn is a Taiwanese company, but even they recognize that the best workers, the best technology, the best supply chain, the best everything uh, right now, whether we like it or not, can be found in China. So they set up most of their, their manufacturing there. But now because of what's happening, because of the pandemic, because of years of workers not happy about what they're paid, not happy about sanitation, not happy about how they're treated, uh, they are now starting to fight back, and uh, it's uh, it's it's been it's been bad the last couple of days. It's been getting worse. So, is it better uh, the workmanship, or is it just cheaper? Yes, and yes. Um, you know, to a certain extent, if you look at your iPhone today versus the iPhone that you would have bought five years ago or any other phone, they're much more highly integrated than they've ever been before. So, uh, you know, if a part breaks on it, you don't repair it anymore. You essentially replace it because basically hmm. your phone is one giant part. Uh, that's incredibly efficient, not good for planet Earth. Uh, but it aligns very nicely with the kind of manufacturing that these facilities in China specialize in. Um, so they're particularly efficient. It's how you can buy a phone relatively inexpensively. It's why they're not any more expensive than they already are, um, simply because these manufacturers, they've, they've got such massive economies of scale. They can take something that might cost, might have cost $3,000 a few years ago, and make that about 1500 or 2000 still expensive but a lot cheaper than it would otherwise be if say we made it here in canada or in the us then we'd be talking significant more significantly more money 
Carmi, how come we're concerned about stuff like Huawei, and we remember that old debate, and we're not concerned about this? Or is it just this is not really technology, it's strictly manufacturing? Why are we concerned about Huawei coming in if, you know, Apple's producing their iPhones there? Well, it's funny because I've been saying this for years, Scott, that, you know, we're we're so focused on not allowing Huawei to bid on the 5G buildup that we don't want black boxes, electronic boxes manufactured by Huawei to be installed on the cell phone towers that dot the country that connect us wirelessly, wirelessly. Yet nobody gives a second thought to the phone that's literally in their hand or in their pocket. And it comes from exactly the same place. And I've been saying it for years. I guess a lot of it has to do with politics. Truth of the matter is, if we really cared about keeping China out of our technological pocket, we wouldn't be buying any devices, uh, whether it's on the network or whether it's at a consumer level like an iPhone from China. We would be sourcing them from anywhere else. The problem here is when you and I walk into an Apple store or a telecommunications store or whatever store, we don't want to spend any more than we want than we want for the phones that we buy. So yeah. to a certain extent, it's the consumer's fault. We want cheap. This is how we get cheap. And it's just not with technology, is it, Carmi? Obviously. What about other major players? Who who's up and coming? Who are the next ones? And how, well, first of all, how much you said that China pretty much has a hand in all of it because in some form, in some shape or form, they have uh, you know a hand in all manufacturers. But who's the next major player? So, I mean, the next major player is, uh, well, Foxconn is sort of the big contract manufacturer for a lot of a, a lot of uh, the major brands that you and I know. Another one is a company called Pegatron, which basically does the same thing. They have different facilities in different areas of China, and they essentially contract manufacture devices. So they include smartphones, and that gets most of the attention, but it also includes things like tablets, laptops, any piece of electronics that you and I buy. A game console, uh, that's where they come from as well. An interesting uh, exception to that is... Uh, is Samsung. And so a lot of the uh, Korean conglomerates, they in fact have their own manufacturing. So they've set up in South Korea um, and they still do most of their manufacturing there. But even they will, if market conditions merit it, they will in fact you know, call across the bay and and uh, manufacture in China as well. So, but I think slowly but surely, I think the rest of the world has been watching what's been happening because of the pandemic. Because there's, we're especially vulnerable when China decides zero COVID and they start to crack down on people's activities. That has a direct impact on the supply chains that feed the electro- our electronics around the world. And that's a significant risk to us. We weren't even aware of it a couple of years ago. I think now people's eyes are starting to open. And I think you're starting to see global manufacturers go, mm, maybe China wasn't such a great deal after all. Maybe we've got to start looking elsewhere. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, uh, iPhone factory in China, issues there and how it ripples across the planet. Fascinating conversation, Carmi. Thanks for the time. Be well. Great being here, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, sad news today uh, when we heard that uh, former Toronto Maple Leaf um, at 71 years of age, Borea Salming has passed away with ALS uh, number 21, a huge mark in the Toronto Maple Leafs on the Toronto Ma- uh, Maple Leafs over the years. And we thought we'd bring in somebody um, who might remember more than I could. No, I'm just kidding. And a legendary uh, uh, man in his own right, Al Craig, former sports director for 900 CHML, is with us now. Al, it is so great to talk to you. I hope you're doing well. It's been a little bit of a while for sure, Scott, and uh, I listen to the show quite a bit, and uh, 
I didn't expect to hear what I heard today. So what are your thoughts when you hear the name Borea Salming? Well, the, basically the first Swede, the first European, there, there, there were smatterings of the, uh, maybe playing a game or something like that. But he basically led the way. I remember uh, back in the day, uh, Harold Ballard uh, took a lot of flack for his uh, thoughts on European players. And uh, Inga Hammerstrom came over around the same time as Borja Salming. He used to make a joke that uh, if he went into the corners with uh, raw eggs in his uh, pants, uh, he wouldn't break one. And uh, that was the type of... Uh, that was a type of feeling of some individuals uh, of Europeans coming to the National Hockey League. He led the way, and uh, and there's so many great Europeans since. It's uh, it's uh, it's something that uh, he really has to take credit for. How big a deal was that back in the day, Al? Oh boy, that was a long time ago, Scott. Uh, I think he didn't he join the Leafs. Uh, 50 years ago or something like yeah, that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's, boy, oh boy. Uh, I'm sort of feeling even older as we speak. Uh, I know. I'm feeling the same way. Exactly. Yeah, you know, uh, I liked him from the beginning because uh, he uh, he was a rugged type of guy. Not dirty, that's for sure. And uh, made a great contribution on the ice all-star fame type of thing. And uh, uh, I can't say enough about them. Uh, the, the, the players came, the Finns, the, uh, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Swedes. We can go on and on. Uh, they all have so much uh, really to uh, thank Borja Salming for. And he set a great example, too, Al, because, I mean, the Toronto fans loved him. They embraced him pretty much. Uh, through, and we saw that the other night uh, when they had the tribute. Daryl Sittler and the rest were out there. Yeah, I was uh, shocked uh, when when he came out on the ice. Uh, and the same thing today, uh, just less than two weeks later, passing away. Uh, Toronto fans did adore him, and for... Uh, for good reason. He was an excellent hockey player and uh, and a great guy. Uh, your thoughts, what stands out for you as as a moment in his career? Oh, I got a bad one. When hmm. he was cut in the face by Gerard Gallant's skate. And it, it was brutal. And they had many, many surgeries but he was 100, 200, 300 stitches. I don't know exactly what the number was, but it went from his, his eyebrow right across his cheek to his chin. And so, unfortunately, that's the thing that stands out right away. Mm. I can't let you go, Al. I can't let you go, Al, without asking you what your thoughts are on uh, this year's version of the Leafs. The Leafs? I think they got a chance to win. All right, Al Craig with us, former sports director for 900 CHML, getting his thoughts on the passing of Borea Salming, fixture of Toronto Maple Leaf, uh, and, of course, passing away at the age of 71 years of age uh, due to ALS. Al, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Great to hear from you again, and I'm sure everybody out there uh, in CHML land is loving hearing, hearing from you again, too. Be well. Yes, you too, Scott. <laughs> 
parliamentarians have questioned the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem about inflation and historic financial losses uh, at the central bank uh, on Wednesday yesterday with top opposition politicians looking to frame the bank's continuing dilemmas to their political advantage. Uh, Macklem says the interest rates need to keep rising in order to fight inflation. The Bank of Canada and the federal government could have taken their foot off the gas sooner when stimulating the economy during the pandemic, the governor said, but he added that that, that knowledge is only clear now with the benefit of hindsight. To unpack it all, Michael Veal is with us, Professor Economics, McMaster, Academic Director, Stat, uh, St, uh, Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are too. So your thoughts on where we are, did we see this coming? We all know if you add money to something, uh, to the to the economy, you're going you're gonna to heat things up. Is this about controlling the burn? Uh, what are your thoughts so far? I, I think that it was always a potential this was going to happen. I think the Bank of Canada had hoped to unwind its position. In other words, uh, raise interest rates over a period of time that would have slowed the economy without this burst of inflation. But a lot of the burst of inflation comes from uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A lot comes from some situations in China involving the pandemic. Uh, These are factors that have come along with the fact that the pandemic in sort of a consumer sense seems to have now ended. And it ended relatively suddenly, uh, starting roughly February, March, roughly the same time as the invasion. Um, and all these things came at once as kind of a perfect storm. And so rather than having perhaps a little inflation and kind of a drawn out uh, experience, we've had a real strong burst of inflation. Obviously, you can't predict world events. That being said, a smart person always is prepared. Or is that just, you know, hindsight? I think it's it's largely hindsight. There were voices who said that they should be uh, conducting more restrictive policy that would have dampened this current inflation um, a, roughly a year ago. Uh, but at the same time, people were really worried that the economy seemed weak uh, and that we wanted primarily to make sure that people were getting back to work, particularly in those sectors that had not yet recovered from the pandemic. Are you surprised where we are now, Michael? Yeah, I, I I was hoping for a, a lower rate of inflation, and I think I think it was the more likely outcome. But as as we've talked about, these international events have have uh, come in that have been re- really impactful on uh, the Canadian economy, and of course, pretty much all the economies in the world have had inflation rates at least as high as Canada's. How long do you anticipate these rates continuing? We understand there's going to be another one. Will it be as great? They're talking maybe a quarter of a point. What are your thoughts there? So in terms of interest rates, uh, the way the the market talks, they would say that a quarter point is priced in. That means everybody's expecting at least a quarter point on the December 6th uh, time uh, increase. Uh, And then some people think it's going to be a little bit more than that. I'm guessing a a quarter point, but, you know, it's just a guess. Uh, Going forward, I don't think there's going to be a lot more in terms of interest rates because I think we're going to start to see um, inflation cool a fair amount. Uh, one of the things is we do year over year inflation. In other words, we're comparing the inflation, the price level now to a year ago. Mm-hmm. What we had was a very strong burst of inflation earlier this year. But lately, despite this recent uh, flare up in gas prices, uh, lately inflation has been starting to cool. I know people aren't, aren't convinced of that, but I think there are signs of it. So this is working. Yeah, it works. It, unfortunately, it works in a, in a bad way. It works by mm-hmm. slowing the economy where 
we like the economy to be rapid. We like people finding jobs and, and finding it easy to get work or relatively easy to get work. Uh, but that, unfortunately, is the consequence of where we are. And I think, you know, it is a bit 2020 hindsight to say, oh, we wish we hadn't spent so much money to try to recover from the pandemic because the pandemic was a, pretty much a unique event. And one of the things that is remarkable about the Canadian economy is how fast it bounced back. At what point do you change your position, change your attitude and say, okay, we can, we can, we can lie back a bit on this? Well, I think they're going to be looking for uh, some reduction in the, the headline numbers of inflation. And they'll also be looking at the sorts of wage settlements that people are getting now. And I think it's fair to say uh, that they are coming in a little bit lower than I would have anticipated with this rate of inflation. Um, and maybe that'll be another thing they look at. Now, people who are in favor, and as I am, of of workers doing well, are realizing that, you know, maybe workers are going to be hurt by this inflation to some extent. But I think nonetheless, we'll see the Bank of Canada uh, not be quite as aggressive uh, going forward as they have been over the last few months. Can you see this leveling out within a year? Oh, yes, definitely. I personally would, that would be my forecast. Of course, you know, uh, a year ago, I'd have probably said that we wouldn't have had what we, we wouldn't be where we are now because of these things like the geopolitical events, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, anything the feds can do to ease the pain for Canadians? The, the uh, federal government is trying, I think, to, to target some money uh, towards people who are particularly hard hit by inflation. Uh, that, of course, has a little bit of an effect of prolonging the inflation because uh, part of the the Bank of Canada's actions are to try to cool the economy. And basically, the, the federal government is saying, well, we don't want to cool it that much for everyone. Uh, so there is a trade-off there. Uh, but I, I think we probably are in for a couple of months more of what we would say is the most serious pain. And then I, I'm personally thinking that the pain will start to get noticeably less. Michael Veal with us, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Statistics Canada Research Data Center. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Locally, uh, the big story is the sewer situation. Uh, after learning, of course, that uh, after 26 years, sewage from about 39 area homes uh, in the Burlington and Wentworth Streets area have been draining uh, into the harbor. And I guess it's not how big it is. It's has this happening in other places. Uh, why did it go undetected for so long? On that note, it didn't take long. Andrea Horbath with this mayor of the city of Hamilton and is with us now. Andrea, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Absolutely, Scott, and I hope you're well as, t- as well. <laughs> this is the first time we've talked since you're officially have become mayor, so congratulations to you. What's it like to hold the reins right now? And we'll put the story aside for a sec. What's it been like for the first little while? Uh, it's been uh, quite fantastic. Uh, certainly a, a lot of um, information coming our way, and we have a number of, as you know, uh, new councillors as well. And so we're going through some of the budget to documents, which are uh, robust, let's just say, and uh, and we're having some uh, some good dialogue. So it's it's been very positive, uh, but uh, lots uh, lots of work. Uh, but I'm I'm up for it. No problem at all. Talk about the big tour of the wards and why that's so important. 
Well, as I just mentioned, Scott, we have uh, two-thirds of the council turned over, and I thought it was really important uh, that every single councillor has a, an understanding not only of their own ward, uh, but of the bigger picture city issues and the uh, the issues that their, their council colleagues are facing. And so I just thought it would be a really good opportunity uh, to understand the, uh, the commonalities, to understand the differences, to understand the big picture, uh, and to, um, you know, to give new councillors a chance to uh, to get the, uh, the the as I said the bigger picture for the city and I, I think it went off very very well and we had the benefit of having some of the senior uh, leadership team as well with us and so they got to hear from the horses mouths if you will um, what what people were concerned about in their own wards. All right, so the chair is barely even warm if you've even got it warm, and all of a sudden you got to deal with this issue. And, and obviously this sounds bigger than what it is, but it does perhaps talk about an ongoing uh, problem. Your thoughts on the situation in regard to the sewage leak, and, and what do you want to tell citizens about it? Well, like all Hamiltonians, uh, I, was, uh, I wasn't happy to hear what happened uh, the other day. Uh, I was pleased that uh, the staff saw what what they thought was a problem and jumped on it right away and addressed it, which is what has to happen. Uh, but uh, like everybody else, it was disappointing. It uh, is frustrating. Uh, and uh, now we need to do better. And so working with the other orders of government uh, to do exactly that is where we're headed. Uh, the um, the province now looking for an audit of the sewer system. Uh, will this pretty much solve the issue if you have to, if you have to go through everything? And, and what does that entail? Do we know? Well, that's a really good question, and uh, that's exactly the question that I'm asking not only our team here at Hamilton, but also the minister. We don't have any details at this point, but I'm looking forward uh, to working with Minister Pacini, working with the, the provincial government and the federal government, frankly, not only to do that proactive work, which is going to be, uh, I'm sure, uh, quite rigorous, uh, and so finding the partnerships that are necessary to do that effectively so that we have the information we need, and then we can start proactively addressing the problems that might uh, uh, be exposed from that process. So it, it really is about partnerships with the other two orders of government. And as I said, I've spoken to uh, Minister Pacini and looking forward to uh, working with him uh, to, to not only get the info, but start getting the fix. Uh, are you confident that through an investigation we will find out what happened here? I mean, it seems that it was intentional. Was it an accident? Was it a mischief? I guess we don't know those details at this point. Well, that's something that uh, uh, our staff have been, um, you know, trying to gear out uh, already. And, and, of course, the other big, big piece of it is, you know, what, what is it that led to uh, this information uh, not being available for a significant amount of time? And so that's what we've asked the city auditor to look at. Uh, what, you know, why didn't we know about this sooner? Yes, what, what, what I'm hearing, as you've identified, uh, is that, um, and what the public is hearing, I'm sure, uh, is that there, this might have been the result of something that was done by a contractor back in 1996 uh, and done purposely because they didn't think it was a big deal. Oh, hmm. this is the same kind of pipe. Let's just connect them, everything will be good. But of course, as we know, one was a stormwater pipe and one was a sewage pipe or a wastewater pipe. And so that's why the, the cross the cross happened and it was inappropriate. So again, um, it, it, it's not just about uh, what happened, but it's also about how do we make sure that if there are other surprises under the ground across our great city, uh, let's, let's try to get a handle on that and do some proactive work. 
and I'm not tr- trying to avoid anybody's responsibility here or, or, or what have you, but it is an old, old city, so Lord knows what you're going to find when you start looking. Well, you've raised a good point. I think we have the second oldest water system in the entire country uh, and the second or third oldest wastewater system in the entire country. Uh, and so you're right. Uh, we have uh, uh, old infrastructure. We have uh, we have a, a unique city because what we have is not what a lot of cities have. We have a combined uh, water, or sorry, wastewater and stormwater system, and particularly in the older parts of the city. And so... You know, th- these are things that um, that they're old kind of they're old models, if you will. So it's not only old infrastructure, but they're old uh, old types of systems that we would never uh, use in this day and age. But back then, that's what we did. It's going to be fascinating once we start digging for the LRT. What we're going to find? <laughs> well, never mind. I've I've seen the wooden catch basins in our cities, and that's no word yeah. of a lie. Um, you know, down in the north end, I actually saw with my own eyes a wooden catch basin. So, so there's just no doubt the uh, infrastructure needs an upgrade, and that's why I say I- I'm happy that the uh, provincial government, uh, that the minister, uh, reached out to me yesterday. We had a conversation, and we're both committed to working together to uh, uh, to to get not only this, as I said, this investigative work done, but then also to try to fix it. Any idea when we will have more information on all of this? Well, the staff is working uh, very, very uh, diligently to, to, for example, to pull out numbers around volumes and those kinds of things. I don't think we've seen yet uh, anything specific from the minister in terms of uh, the order. I, I don't know that we have that uh, that detail yet from the minister, uh, but uh, or the ministry. But uh, we, we, you know, when we get that, that'll become public, obviously. Um, as uh, we move forward with all of this, are you? How concerned are you if there's large sections of things like? I mean, that was one of the benefits of LRT was that once this work is started, that a lot of that infrastructure will be replaced. Um, how much of the uh, the infrastructure under Hamilton is considered old infrastructure? Well, that's funny you asked that question because we were just having the uh, conversation today about the water, wastewater, uh, and um, stormwater budget like literally today. And so those presentations are online. If people are interested in that kind of specific, very specific information, there's actually a map that shows uh, where those pipes are, uh, just overall in terms of uh, the old type of infrastructure, the combined uh, uh, wastewater and uh, stormwater system that I was just talking about. That's all available online uh, on the city's uh, portal, and, and people can go and have a look at that if they're interested. It, it, there's, it's significant. I would be, I, I, I don't think it can be down. Played. It's most of the lower city, uh, as well as uh, part of the older part of uh, of the um, you know the uh, city, the old city of Hamilton on the escarpment. It's it's pretty extensive. Andrea Horbath with us, Mayor, City of Hamilton, talking about the sewer issues and moving forward. Andrea, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you so much, Scott. You be well as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ontario's Education Minister Stephen Lecce making announcements this morning along with uh, Finance Minister Peter Bethenthalvy about an expansion to the dual credit program for students to create pathways into the skilled trades with real life skills. Joining us now, Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario, and with us now, Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. 
Uh, before we get into this dual credit program, give us a bit of an update, please, on uh, QP, the situation where it is now. It looks like things are moving forward, despite uh, what the union said. They weren't happy with it, but it, it, it appears the members are. Yeah, it looks like this is uh, moving forward. Uh, they're voting as we speak. It started, uh, you know, this week. It'll go for another week on. Um, look, it, it's ratification. We need to respect the process. It is up to the members ultimately. Uh, I think they've got a very fair proposal for them and, and frankly, a win-win-win for all three parties at the table. The biggest winner, I think, frankly, are the kids who have been in school for the last couple of days and, you know, talk to any parent, they're happy. Like, they're just, you know... Th- they're just happy to be with their friends and their educators, and they're rather pleased from a parent perspective that their kids are focused on catching up, on reading, writing, and math, and getting to the back to the basics of school and enough of the distraction and the disruption. So it is positive we got to this point. We stood strong. We had to do you know, what was uh, right for children, taxpayers, and the workers, and I think we came to a good outcome we could all live with, recognizing that the most important thing for myself uh, leading the negotiation on behalf of the government was the kids got to be in school. And I think that is a fair request of any responsible government. And I just want to say thanks to the workers, uh, to the members, to the school boards for working with us to deliver that because uh, nothing should matter more to us. Um, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. However, now on the horizon, teacher contracts, does this affect that in any way? What are your thoughts moving forward? Because that's still sort of hanging over everybody. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Scott, I've got to say, and, and I don't, I will never speak for the teacher unions, but they've said it themselves publicly in the last couple of days. It's been a very professional negotiation so far, right? Like we're not, the teachers have, uh, unions have opted to negotiate in, in private, in confidence. The QP opted to negotiate in public, meaning anything we pass to each other, any offers, you know, I mean, just tentative offers or conceptual offers, it gets posted. So the, the option the teaching uh, proceeded on, it, it, it may create a more professional space where we're, we're focused at the table uh, instead of, uh, you know, the outside looking in. And that may be helpful. But at the end of the day, um, they have been productive, good faith. And I do think there's pathways to deal. So to be honest with you, I never set an expectation. I don't think I can deliver. But I think there's a good faith effort on all sides at this point. So... You know, it's a bit early because QP started a lot earlier than the teachers, and they were much more accelerated in the number of meetings they wanted over the summer, uh, you know, frankly, probably, you know, uh, uh, compared to the teachers. But uh, so far, so good. And we're going to stay at the table. We're working right through November, December, uh, as we did three years ago. And we got deals with every single union in Ontario. So it can be done. It was done. I got them done. It just requires a good deal of focus on kids and making sure that they're not the casualty of our debate. All right, good to hear. Uh, dual credit program, what does this mean? Tell us about this. Yeah, so essentially there is a program in Ontario that allows kids in high school to take a college course or an apprenticeship training course that now can count towards their high school diploma and it counts towards their post-secondary certificate. So you're allowed in high school to take a college course, hands-on, skilled trades course, that we allow them to apply towards graduation and they can apply it in their college or, you know, it could be their certificate of apprenticeship, whatever the path they're choosing. It's a, it's a win-win. So it's a great program, and we've got massive demand. And we've got $160 billion of infrastructure in the province over the coming decade. You know, highways, schools, roads, you name it, we're doing it. And it's not the political will that's the problem or the money. 
on the opposite, on the contrary, it's the people. We don't. We just don't have enough skilled labor. We need a. We need a, uh, a talent pipeline of skilled workers who can do the jobs. And so it's not just about building infrastructure. It's about creating opportunities for young people, of which not all these kids should go become a go get a you know a liberal arts degree and go become a PhD in political science because the Lord knows we probably don't need a lot more of those. <laughs> we need skilled work. And I am a, and I am one of those guys, by the way. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm yeah, able to, I hear you. I, I, you know, like I went to I went to Western, very proud of my undergraduate degree, social studies, loved it, great experience, helped me in a very specific way get to where I'm at. But that's just not the case for most kids. And I just think we can't lose sight of the fact that young people are losing the fire in their belly, the ambition to be bold. This is the first generation in the history of our nation where they may be worse off than their parents. And frankly, folks, we cannot let that happen. We have to challenge the status quo. We have to light a fire within each of them to be bold and ambitious and to embrace entrepreneurialism, which I think is at its core what our government is trying to do with our new curriculum. We're teaching kids about financial literacy, mandatory learning on budgeting, financial literacy. Now they're learning how to code. They're learning how to build robots in elementary school. It's not just cool from a kid perspective. It's exciting to connect learning to the labor market so that these young people don't say anymore, why did I learn that? Or so let, let, they say, I can't get a job. Let me get an example of this, Stephen, and I'll just throw this out there. So if I'm a kid in, say, grade 11 or 12, and I'm not having a good time in a certain subject, academic, whatever, I can take something in high school that will help me work towards my trade in a college or apprenticeship in some form, but also get a high school credit for that. Yes, that is literally what That's I'm a great doing. idea. the program yeah. by $4.8 million. You know, I, I, got, I always point to Germany because they've got this awesome model. You're in, uh, you're in school, in high school. And you have to part of their apprenticeship training is they actually link you up with the with the with the company. So you go into the business. They're a little bit ahead of this program. We're building in Ontario. We're building out in Ontario. What ends up happening there is the employer pays for the program, and then the student makes a commitment to work mm. for the employer. So the kid graduates with a guaranteed job. The company invests in this kid as a student, but they're getting a worker, a skilled worker. So it's a win-win. We've got to look at a more cooperative education program where we bring in more actual hands-on learning. I'm, you know, theoretics and abstractions right. have a role in school, but we need more hands-on learning, which is why we're allowing this to happen for 2,200 additional students. Uh, and I think it's going to go a long way to helping us uh, destigmatize the jobs and create pathways to a good-paying job for these young people when they graduate. Stephen Lecce with us, Education Minister, Province of Ontario. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. The Emergencies Act inquiry in its final days. All the heavy hitters making their way to the stand uh, earlier today. Christia Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, on the stand for a great deal of time. I think right till about 5 o'clock or so in and around there. And uh, then it was advisors in the Prime Minister's office uh, making their way as this continues. And, of course, uh, the Prime Minister ends it all. Fascinating column by Lawrence Martin, Public Affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail, and the column is uh, Don't Bet on the Emergencies Act Inquiry Hurting Trudeau. To talk more about all of this, the author, Lawrence Martin, a public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail, and he's here now. Lawrence, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm good. And you? 
So far, so good. Uh, you talked in your column about the testimony of the CSIS director and how the CSIS director uh, basically came out and said uh, that although the legal definition uh, of the Emergencies Act, in other words, not enough to uh, to be a threat to national security and it being called, uh, it certainly was needed and recommended it uh, to clean up the mess afterwards. Is this a pivotal time in this inquiry? I think what the uh, spy director said was important. It was really interesting, sort of, he, he changed his mind, right? Initially, he said that he first advised the government that there was not enough of a threat to justify the use of the Emergencies Act. Uh, but then, conveniently, uh, he sort of uh, broadened the definition of what constitutes a, a threat and, and gave Mr. Trudeau the, the green light. And so we see... Um, um, now, this this was not such a biased source as uh, as Miss Freeland today, who's uh, really and say, and I think she's exaggerating when she says, you know, we were such, this was such a threat to the United States that uh, that this type of thing had to be done. I don't think the, th- the threat to trade to the United States was that serious. But anyway, the government has been uh, presenting this case, um, but I, but I think from the starting point, uh, Trudeau is very in very very good position because most Canadians and polls show this, most Canadians wanted that blockade to end uh, um, uh, the occupation and most Canadians uh, did not mind the use of the Emergencies Act. So the whole starting point of this inquiry is, you know, that um, that, uh, you know, most inquiries um, probe uh, bad things. This is uh, this is probing something that uh, the people sort of like. And uh, you know, I, I don't think the um, the judge in the end is going to uh, bring in a, a really cut and dry decision that 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 hammers the prime minister. Um, I, I could completely agree with you that uh, I think everybody wanted this to be over in some form. And after three weeks, uh, obviously something needed to be done to clean up the mess. Um, is that enough for Canadians? Because to me, that's one part of the argument. The other is, how did we get here in the first place? Uh, how did this all start? Why wasn't it dealt with in earlier situations? Why wasn't intelligence shared? And most importantly, why wasn't there a plan B? So, uh, you know, we needed we needed it to get everything cleaned up. But is the public as interested in how we got here and why this was allowed to to simmer for three weeks before this happened? Yeah, well, that's why I think this inquiry is very good. It's shedding light on that, right? In the sense, um, uh, you're right. I mean, we're talking about um, the fumbling response to this whole thing by... Um, by the local government in Ottawa, by the provincial government at Queen's Park, by Mr. Trudeau's government uh, uh, here in Ottawa, and, and fumbling response also of different levels of law enforcement. And um, so there are, there are a lot of blame to go around here, and, uh, and the inquiry is good in, in shedding light on it. Uh, but I don't think the... Um, uh, when uh, just Paul Rouleau brings in his decision, he's going to be pointing the finger at uh, at Mr. Trudeau in particular. I think he's, you know he's going to be dealing with a lot of gray area legal detail, spreading hairs on this and that uh, that are not of that great interest to the public. And uh, so I and then that that report won't be coming down for quite a while. So uh, 
Uh, politically speaking, I don't think this is going to damage Trudeau uh, much at all because um, overall, as we've said, the, uh, the, the the Canadian people wanted this blockade and then ended. And the use of the Emergencies Act um, all show was was not terribly uh, opposed in the first place. Do you, do you think Canadians are concerned about how it started? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the fact that they were just able to roll into town, occupy city center right in front of the parliament building, uh, close it down for weeks is um, is uh, is outrageous. And um, as I say, the different levels of, of governments have had different responsibilities on it. They couldn't come together to coordinate a plan. I do think maybe Mr. Trudeau should have met with some of the uh, protesters uh, and, and maybe tried to work out a deal uh, in that respect. Uh, the local government, I think, should have been far more on top of it with its police forces. Uh, they, I think they, 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 the, the big blame can be pointed at them. Are you surprised there wasn't a plan for this? Because, you know, I know there's protests in Ottawa all the time, but it's obvious that there's RCMP, uh, city police, uh, provincial police, what have you. But if this was to happen again next week, would you be confident <laughs> that there's a plan B in place here, other than they're just going to go home with their tail between their legs? <laughs> Interesting you mention that, because there's a story out today that says uh, the uh, blockaders are, are planning to uh, do another one uh, <laughs> on the anniversary of the last blockade. So, uh, but I think the uh, I think the authorities uh, have learned a lesson here, and uh, well, they've got in fact they've got in front of the whole uh, Parliament building, Wellington Street here. It's all blocked off now. Anyway, nobody can get through there with cars or vehicles. So that problem is taken care of right away. But uh, yeah, they will learn from that. It was a uh, it was an embarrassment uh, not only here in Canada but internationally. I mean, I. I spend a lot of time in Washington, and uh, the international media, um, we were we were looked upon as uh, you know as a bit of a joke, and the um, and the prime minister for for bringing in the Emergencies Act was you know sort of labeled a dictator, which is kind of fun and weird for Trudeau. I mean, he's usually labeled as um, you know criticized for apologizing to everybody yeah. and for laying down the hammer, right? Lawrence Martin with his public affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail. The latest, don't bet on the Emergencies Act inquiry hurting Trudeau. Lawrence, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, another busy day at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, one of the better days, including, well, all this week has been just um, must-see TV. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. Uh, but uh, Christia Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister, on the stand for most of the day, uh, right through till late afternoon. And then it was uh, advisors to the Prime Minister's office uh, making their way in. And tomorrow, it's uh, the Prime Minister himself. Uh, interesting, uh, coming from Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, uh, talking about uh, chatting with the Americans and being concerned about supply chains and economics of the Freedom Convoy and uh, they calling Canada a joke and how this was uh, taking over sort of the country and the borders and such. Uh, interesting discussion with Lawrence Martin, public affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail, just a few minutes ago in his current column, uh, Don't Bet on the Emergencies Act Inquiring Hurting Trudeau. Let's ask Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and is with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you. 
Your thoughts on, uh, I, I don't know if you heard or if you've read his article, but Lawrence Martin of the Globe said that uh, he doesn't think this is going to have too much effect politically on the prime minister. What are your thoughts? How is the public going to react to this? Or are they just so happy it was all over that um, he's the saving grace, he's the hero here? Well, as much as I want to be give you good radio here, I think he has a point in this. Uh, Trudeau has a long, long track record of being tough on when it comes to issues like this. I think by the time Canadians go to the polls in the next election, whenever that might be, I don't think this is going to be a pressing issue that a lot of Canadians are concerned about and one that people are probably going to be talking about because there's probably going to be another crisis that comes up that he'll likely fumble and then opposition leaders will try to pounce on like they've done many, many times before. So I think at the end of the day, this is another speed bump in the Trudeau, I guess you can call it legacy. Uh, the CSIS director said earlier on in the week, uh, the criteria mm-hmm. met to uh, declare the Emergencies Act not met, not a threat to national security, however, recommended it, it, it to the prime minister to basically clean up the mess. Those are my words. Uh, <laughs> that being said, uh, is that enough? Are people concerned are more concerned with this just being over as opposed to how did, it, how did we get here? How did this all start? How did we get from zero to three weeks in such a short period of time. I think people will be somewhat concerned about how we got to this just because of the historical precedent that it did set. And that's why we have folks in this commission looking into it and providing kind of that uh, step back lens to understand, was this necessary? If we have a similar situation, do we need to do it again? But I think when we talk to everyday Canadians, I don't think they're paying that much attention to this. I think they're more concerned about being able to pay for their groceries, being able to pay for gas, or even making their mortgage payment. So I think this is kind of just, again, a bit of a blip in the radar. I'll be honest with you, I'm quite surprised that so many people are paying attention to it because it honestly seemed like a very much an Ottawa bubble uh, conversation, but it's getting a lot of play and it is causing the government some headaches. Why do you think it is getting a lot of play? Oh, it's good political theater. Come on. It's always entertaining when we can actually see the inner workings of the government, seeing how the sausage is made and how they came up with their decision. And no matter where you sit on the fence, you have a very strong opinion if the government did the right thing or the wrong thing. Or if you have other opinions, you kind of want to listen to hear how it happened so you you can understand better. And it's honestly kind of just like a a good uh, drama that we see on TV a lot of times, but we're actually seeing it play out in real life. The one thing that stands out to me, Daniel, and I'll go back right to the very first weekend that this all started, the Friday mm-hmm. before, when the the various convoys were coming from all over, every direction to come in. And we had one of our reporters out in between here and Niagara somewhere, probably Grimsby. And there was convoys mm-hmm. moving through, and there were people on the overpasses supporting them. Yeah. And yeah. I introduced him, and I brought him in uh, to the conversation, and I and I called the, the anti-vax protest, because <laughs> at the time, that's, I guess, what I called it. And mm-hmm. he corrected me, and he said, I wouldn't be calling it an anti-vaxxers protest. He said, because the, most of the people I'm talking to, they've all been vaccinated. He mm-hmm. said, it's not about that. Do you think this resonates more with... Canadians than just the inconvenience we saw in Ottawa. That's a very fair point. I think when a lot of people came to Ottawa and what a lot of the momentum that came from it was just frustration with the government and not feeling heard and not feeling seen. Too often, I think Canadians feel like the government, especially this government, focuses on major cities such as Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, and kind of leaves some of the smaller cities out. So like the Niagara area, um, the Kingstons and folks like that. So I think it was just kind of them being frustrated. They wanted to blow off some steam because let's be honest, COVID was hard on a lot of people. It was not an easy time. 
So I think that the convoy was able to kind of tap into that frustration. And I think that's the frustration that we continue to see with the government, especially with the prime minister's approval ratings. He's hovering, I think, just under 50% approval. Um, so I think that's kind of where it stems from. And that is a good point that the convoy was more of just anti-vax protest. It was, I'm getting tired of this government. Uh, we heard uh, Christia Freeland talking about uh, investors, banking investors, uh, bankers talking about investors calling Canada a banana republic, that this stuff's getting out of hand, blah, blah, blah. What about the worldview of this and how it was handled? Um, does that affect us domestically? Mm-hmm. Ed Freeland in her uh, remarks did say that she was concerned about how people would view us, especially with the Ukraine conflict about uh, to be started. She thought Russia would be playing this all over their state news to say, look how weak other countries are and look how good we are. We're able to manage our people better. Therefore, we should be more of a uh, dominant player. I-, I think there is some credibility into that concern, especially any money talks, to be honest with you. So when the bridge got shut down and auto plants were at risk of not being able to produce vehicles, that got the government's attention very quickly because that is economic security. And that's something that we cannot afford to lose. So I think if you are looking at from a na- from an international lens, you'd be kind of questioning how the government approached this and if there was a better way. And also wondering how it got out of hand so quickly. Hmm. Uh, and you bring up a valid point. Uh, after three weeks, I'm not sure there's many Canadians <laughs> that weren't saying, oh, I don't know what you got to do, but you got to do something. This is getting way out of hand. After three weeks, mm-hmm. are we as Canadians focused on how it got to this point, and not only you know what may have happened, the issues with the Ottawa Police Service and mm-hmm. and the, the Police Services Board and the City of Ottawa and such, but even the political climate that created this. Yeah, honestly, everyone's at fault, and as politicians love to do, never let a good crisis go to waste. They're all pointing fingers yeah. at everyone, saying it's not my fault; it's the other person's fault. And hopefully, this commission kind of underlines whose fault it actually is and how we can actually do better next time because. It did get out of hand. It escalated very quickly to a point where it really didn't need to go. So I think as long as we as Canadians can look at this as a learning point and kind of take away like, hey, let's not have the downtown core of our nation's capital uh, gridlocked for three weeks. Let's not have major trade routes be blocked. Let's try to find some common ground, some solutions to the problem. I think this kind of might even help us start having those conversations of how can we be better? Are you surprised that the nation's capital even had this problem? Are you surprised there wasn't a plan B in place if they didn't leave? And are you confident, as someone who lives in Ottawa, that (laughs) if this was to happen next week, oh, yeah, we got it under control now? Uh, No, to be honest with you. Um, They're taking steps here in Ottawa to try to figure out, like blocking off uh, Wellington Street, which is right in front of Parliament. Uh, and they're looking to actually redevelop that into a pedestrian uh, pathway so vehicles can't drive down. So they are taking small steps. And we have seen police be a lot more cautious now in terms of protests coming to town. But it it was one of those things where there was just so many people coming here, it it just ballooned too quickly and our authorities weren't prepared enough. So again, hopefully we can take this back as people in Ottawa to realize we need to do more. We need to find a solution so that this doesn't happen again. But uh, I'm not saying I fully believe the solutions we have put forward so far in terms of firing people and hoping the new people do a better job. Like there's a lot of stuff we need to learn and it takes time to figure it out. Whoever said that Ottawa was the town that fun forgot. My goodness. Uh, (laughs) Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up next after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley and the Scott Radley Show. And you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Uh, And here he is now. Scott, how are you today? Hope you're doing well. I am well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate you taking the time. Your thoughts as a sports guy on the passing of Aureus Salming. Uh, um, uh, Shocking. Uh, Not that it was not obvious that he was not well when we saw him a week or two weeks ago in Toronto. Um, Yeah. But here's the thing. I have a a friend who is battling ALS right now. And so I have... You know, this is new to me. This he is the first person that I've really been close to that's had this. So I'm learning about this illness as I'm watching him deal with this. And oh um, the the thing about it is, it's not generally a um, sort of a drop dead kind of. It's a very gradual but no. very debilitating thing. So it was very shocking after we saw Boreas Solving, as I say, just a week or two ago, and and clearly. You know, in getting to advanced stages of it, but still, it was very shocking. My point is to see today or to hear today that he's gone. And you can see with the reaction of uh, Daryl Sittler, obviously that night, and yep. I was watching a clip of him uh, today. Obviously, very moved by all of this. Well, as I say, I don't want to make this uh, about me, but as I say, my experience—I I had not experienced in any way ALS. Uh, thankfully, it's not been around me in any other way. And so um, uh, Daryl Sittler's reaction, I have no doubt, was because yeah. Boris Solming was a, a friend and it was a reminder of great times in their life and everything else. But I tell you, it's it, when you know someone and you see the effect it has, it is, it's mm-hmm. difficult. It's really difficult to see someone who has been very, well, I mean, Boris Solming was arguably the fittest guy in the NHL at the time he played. And you look at a guy who was such a physical specimen and see him struggle to the point where Daryl Sittler at the the thing that it has to hold his arm up so he can wave to the crowd. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad because of your memories, but it's also just, it's sad to watch someone who's been so vigorous in such a rough place. Um, had Andrea Horvath on, mayor of the yes. city of Hamilton, earlier today talking about uh, the situation with the sewers and such. And we all know the story and what's happened. Uh, but we were chatting about how old Hamilton is, what a historic city it is. Uh, and especially if you're doing a sewer audit, whatever the heck that involves, I'm guessing it's checking every pipe that's out there. Lord knows what you're going to find under this city. I was even thinking, once I start digging up the uh, uh, the city for the LRT, I mean, we're liable to find gangsters. I mean, who knows what you're <laughs> well, going to find down there? Yeah, that would be, and that would be. The, Is that stretching it too much, God? No, I, and I think that would be the least problematic thing we might find. Um, <laughs> no, I, I was, I was, in fact, in the newsroom just before I came on talking with Dave Woodard about this, and and we were just saying. You know, this is going to be costly. And I said, not the experience itself, not the doing the audit itself. But yeah, this is a city that is aged. And I mean, could we all of a sudden say we need a billion dollars in urgent infrastructure done? Mm. Would that be, would you fall out of your chair shocked if a year from now they came to us and said, after the audit, we need a billion dollars spent immediately? I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked.
And even the mayor was speaking of, you know, discovered uh, in her tours around a catch basin made of wood. I mean, it's just it's it's one of those things. It's an old city. You're going to see uh, different variations. And especially with uh, and I guess there's a great argument for the LRT is, the you know, the fact that that will all be repaired and updated before uh, the LRT is in place. But I'm guessing this will be a situation where, no, they can't rip it all out as it becomes problematic. They'll deal with the worst cases and then move down. And I'm sure it won't be done in our lifetime. Well, that that becomes part of the question is, okay, so let's say they do this audit, which I assume they will, and let's say they find all these things that are the matter. Are we talking about just things that are at that are either failing now or at risk of failing, or are we saying, no, you must raise everything to today's standards, as yeah, if you were putting luck. it in new? There's no, I, I don't see how anyone could afford to do that, or how no. we could. I mean, Boston a few years ago, there was a because they did this thing for years called the Big Dig. They were putting in a subway. The whole city basically was a construction zone. That's what would that's what Hamilton would look like if all of a sudden we said, you know, this isn't up to standard, so we got to change that. You would have to dig out everything in the lower city, pretty much. It would be horrendous. So hey, I don't know what they would do. Forget LRT. It looks like we're getting a new subway system. They'll start digging <laughs> yeah. everything up. You we, might as well put some track down there while you're we, there. We might just run. It's two levels. The sewage goes below the subway tracks, <laughs> and just you know, just make sure you don't stand too close so you don't get splashed. As you might have something there. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great show. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word, the Hamilton sewer man wrote in to say, hey, as discussed several times, majority of Hamilton sewers are combined, not unlike Toronto and many other older cities, albeit bad. Burlington Street is the least of Hamilton's issues. There are several areas in Hamilton that have combined sewer issues with sewage dumping directly into the storm lines. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.